But no, the challenges that came in through the door were so varied. You know, we had to do things, as you can imagine, being quite a naive 17-year-old starting nursing. You did see some things that you really didn't expect to see. As I say, the fabrication of juiced illness, it was something I hadn't expected, I guess, when I went into nursing. I am a great believer that there aren't bad people, but there are people that had a bad start in life. And, you know, with the right help and support, they can be changed. But what Baskapan and AOCPB do is bring the professionals together. So it is a joint response, and that's where the change happens. Hi, I'm Tammy Banks, the Interim Consultant Director of the Association of Child Protection Professionals and your host for today. It's my great pleasure to welcome Chair of AOCPP, Wendy Thurgood, to talk to us today. So these podcasts specifically are going to be talking to our trustees and are going to be exploring their careers and why they're on the board of AOCPP. So welcome, Wendy. Welcome, Tammy. It's brilliant to have you here today. Thank you so much for giving up your time for us. No worries, not a problem. Although I say that, and to be fair, you give up a lot of time for AOCPP. As the chair, a lot of responsibility falls to you, doesn't it? Yes, it's a tad busier than I expected it to be, but then we've had some quite challenging times and quite a lot of changes, but I'm passionate about the organisation from a young member to now, so it's been an honour. I feel it's an honour and a privilege. Fantastic. Well, we're really grateful to you, um, certainly, as are all of the members. Would you mind just telling us a little bit about yourself, Wendy, just as an introduction? And then what I'd really love to do is talk to you in a little bit more detail about your career and your connectivity to AOCPP. Yeah, no, that's fine. So I'm a nurse, a paediatric, midwifery, health visiting. I would consider myself to be a true cardiothoracic nurse. That was my passion. And then the role just evolved, really. But it was frontline nursing that I think got me involved in the holistic assessments of how things work and how things fit together and as much as I think people see nurses as pink and fluffy we do an awful lot and my career from working within a ward to a ward sister to a manager some of the greatest times have been on practice and involved in roadside recovery intensive care It's been a challenge, but yeah, and then I sort of drifted into safeguarding. Wow. I just need to stop for a moment and just recognise actually the power of what you've said, because you've just given us a very whistle-stop tour of your career, but really highlighting the fact that you went into operational practice and then moved through very much into management and strategic impact. And then within that connected really strongly to safeguarding as well. I think safeguarding, I mean, I trained in London in a city, Guy's Hospital, and you saw a lot of deprivation really early on in my career. I am a London girl, you can probably tell by my accent. Grandparents were born and bred in Catford. So as I say, London, we moved out to Essex, but I was very much generated and pulled back to London because I grew up in a very small village, rural village, and I missed the buzz of London. So, of course, going to London, you see the extreme of specialised practice, such as renal transplants, cardiac problems. And then you see the general day to day. And at that time, when I was training, there was quite a lot of challenging cases that came through the door. But you really got to work with experts in their field. So it was really, really good. I failed to say that I'm a mother. So I've got two children, happily married, and I'm currently living in Dorset. In beautiful, beautiful Dorset. Yes. (laughs) Fantastic. Let 
let's um, reflect back on that early career a little bit then. So you talk about being born and bred in London and how you went back to London to work as well. Can you tell us a little bit about what you were doing when you were there, what your role involved and I guess as well, what was the biggest learning from being on the streets of London as a frontline practitioner? Yeah, well, I didn't always want to be a nurse, I'll be honest. I mean, people, I think, have their careers mapped out. I sort of did various part-time roles, but because I wanted to go to London, the cheapest option was to actually go into nursing because you've got accommodation. So I actually applied for nursing sort of on a whim, really, just so I could be back where I love because I just love the buzz. And I applied to work at Guy's, got accepted. And so I started my training. And I remember walking in and I'd been abroad and I had a lovely tan and lovely long blonde hair and quite thin and felt quite happy with life. Six weeks into that, you're virtually on your knees because it was 24-7. But what I do feel privileged about is working at Guy's is you had a really grounded, solid training. And as I say, it gave you access to experts. It was at the time where nurses were very much nurses and doctors didn't really mingle. But at the time in the early 80s, late 70s, early 80s, we started to bridge that gap. So you had doctors coming onto the wards working alongside you because they had to do a certain amount of nursing and it broke down the barriers. So while I was there, the canteen, doctors used to have their own canteen and all of a sudden they had to come and eat with us nurses. So it was early evolving of what we were doing, but it changed the respect and the dynamics. You still had some very old professors who you had to bow and scrape to, but equally those professors had lots of experience. So it was during my paediatrics, I first came across some child protection issues, really serious child protection issues. And you start realising nursing isn't all clinical. There is a definite social element. In that case, I was working on some fabricated induced illness. And so that started getting me thinking, but it equally makes you think that what we do within health, a certain element is preventable, especially when you're looking at mental health. So I started forming this picture that I enjoyed what I was doing. I ended up doing ITU and special care, but I always thought bigger. You just see that actually some of the patients, adults and children that come through the door a lot of it could have been prevented, if you know what I mean. So you start seeing that the social neglect and the way people are living impact on their life outcome chances. So I started thinking that bigger picture, the public health issue. And I guess I've always had quite a curious mind. Does that make sense, Tammy? Yeah, absolutely. It makes brilliant sense. And I have to say, I wanted at three or four different points to ask you further about different things you're explaining. So if you don't mind, I'm just going to yeah. go back to just a couple of things. So one of the things that you talked about was how times have changed. And you gave an example, actually, of doctors and nurses initially eating in different canteens and then you being part of nursing when, I guess, that recognition of the importance of both roles working together was really realised. And that, that's quite surprising to me. I didn't even know that that was a thing. At the moment, as you know, I do some work in Parliament and we're just going through a process now of assessing where MPs have access to in comparison to clerks and such like. And it strikes me when you talk back about nursing and doctors that actually there was a real differentiation of roles when you started. Would you oh, say yeah. that that's changed now? Oh, I definitely think the roles are blended and the respects for nurses changed because at the time I started, you still had SEN and RGN training 
So there was quite a difference there. But the SENs were the backbone of nursing. And you then had the SRNs and the degree nurses coming on board. So there was quite a lot of pecking order. But those roles got blended sort of as we worked towards actually getting a degree. I felt for the first sort of 20 years of my nursing career, I was doing one course after another. You used to have in-house courses and then you would move on to sort of that degree level. But as you've come to have nurses that are very well qualified, as I got to the level as nurse practitioner, and I'm now a nurse consultant. And um, I'll tell you a funny story there, actually, at Guy's. The consultants used to have their own car park and my flatmate, who was a junior doctor at the time, we used to drive in and we used to sneak a little blue imp into the car park and we would often come out and there'd be stickers all over it, consultants, car park only. And we both vowed that we were going to be consultants one day. And I never dreamt as a nurse I'd ever get to be nurse consultant. So my dream came true and so did his. But that, that's what it was like. But it definitely isn't like that now. You have much more mutual respect and shared responsibility. And as I say, the nurse practitioner's role, any leadership roles, you can hold just the same ground, especially working with intensive care because you were there, you're not on rotation, you're a permanent member of staff. So you're respected as such and you're treated as an equal. You'll be doing just what doctors would be doing, like intubation, putting lines in. So, you know, the respect for the nursing career has developed. Absolutely. And just like it should have done as well. So I'm, I'm really pleased that we are in a different position now. But it's interesting to reflect back and have a look at, I guess, that journey of change. And I think it's fantastic that one of the things that inspired you to become a consultant was the car park. Yeah. <laughs> you know, we it's the small things in that. life. Yeah. <laughs> we just wanted a car park in space. You've mentioned a couple of times how you feel really fortunate to have gone to guys early in your career and how you received some really effective training there. Do you think training is important for people, I guess, early in their career and throughout their career? Definitely. I feel quite frustrated when I'm delivering training to practitioners that don't have a grounded sense of patience, you know, and a holistic attitude, because you, you find now people will specialise, they will do an adult branch, they do a child branch. I'm always saying there's no children without adults. And equally, you need to know the whole systems. You need to see people as a whole. So early on, we used to have to do like a, a surgical, medical, whatever placements. And then you would end up, ITU was where it all came together for every element, every element. And now that isn't the same because it's very sort of, at a degree level so you get people that can research things but I think everybody needs to have grounded where you've walked in people's shoes really so that's why the practical part of nursing and I think that's becoming apparent and noticeable you really do need a strong practical element to be able to carry out the job yeah absolutely and just reflecting back on those early days was there anything that really stands out for you then that was a particular struggle back then um the hours <laughs> they were really long hours I mean we used to do 12 hour shift nights you would do seven nights on the trot um, wow seven in a row yeah you do seven so you get to your hump night and you're nearly on your knees and you know not sleeping I don't I, I enjoyed it in a way because you managed to get a work-life balance because after doing seven you would get a week off so that was always like a well you wouldn't quite get a week you'd get six days but that was like having a mini holiday but you still had all the studying that you were doing. 
struggle I don't know we we really had a good set so we really bonded together so if something was really challenging we overcome it together you know and you're still in touch with a lot of the people that you trained with you form a family because you see more of them than you did your own family but no the challenges that came in through the door were so varied you know we had to do things as you can imagine being quite a naive 17 year old starting nursing you did see some things that you really didn't expect to see because it was a specialised unit. And of course, you saw some very sad cases, which I did see, particularly on the paediatric side, as I say, the fabricated induced illness. It was something I hadn't expected, I guess, when I went into nursing. But you start seeing the child protection side. It was the time when we were having the Vietnamese children come across and I got very attached to one girl. But she had been physically, sexually abused. And her brother actually brought her into the hospital and she was with us. I mean, this wouldn't happen now, but she was with us for about nearly a year on the ward until we could actually get her placed. And she didn't talk. She'd had all her teeth pulled out and horrific abuse. And I guess it was getting used to that, that you're not just in there fixing people. It's about what happens on the outside world for them when they do leave. And equally for adults coming in that were homeless or living on the streets. So... Yeah, some of that was really challenging. I found working with adults very sad because my grandparents, as I say, were in London and they were coming to a time where they was quite old and needed support. So you'd liken it to that. And I guess I likened my nursing career more to them and getting it right and really wanting to get it right more so than children at the time because I didn't have children I think once you've had children you get a different stance yeah if that makes sense I mean I still did I hope I did a very good job but no it absolutely makes sense because your own personal frame of reference changes doesn't it and what you're considering in daily life impacts you personally and professionally it's interesting there because you talk about the other nurses the ones that you trained with and you were on those really long shifts which hopefully with um, working time directive you'd have a bit of a break in between now (laughs) but you talk about them as family would you say that they helped you get through those difficult times did you kind of learn and grow together in that way definitely definitely we're a team you could compare cases you could compare awful ward sisters that were dragons (laughs) when you knew that you were going on there and and you know different just different obstacles that you're facing. You know, when you're faced with going on to an adult mental health ward, it's scary. You know, as I say, you are quite young, but you have that interest, human nature. And I think it's always fascinating. I've always been a bit of a people watcher. So it's fascinating as well as can be quite scary at times to actually understand how you're making a difference. I look back at some of the things that we were expected to do then that, you know, without much training, So just sharing, working on a renal ward, there was myself and a very good friend and we were on a night shift. All the senior staff were dealing with transplants because as they come in, they have to be dealt with. And that left us in charge of the general ward. And I can honestly say those children knew more about their condition than we did. I remember picking up a chart and this child reeling off his condition in depth and his blood results. And I went, okay, would you like some medication to help you sleep? And you're just... (laughs) You've got to think, really, I'm in charge of this. And we just blundered through. You'd have renal dialysis going on. Now it would be better managed. You wouldn't have students running wards and you would have support. So there were times that have definitely changed for the better. But there's cases like that on nights, especially over Christmas, the students were covering and running and, you know, the day staff had holidays. And of course, it's much fairer now. Well, yeah, let's hope so. 
So after establishing yourself as a nurse, you quite soon rose up the ranks and took on more responsibility. And that doesn't surprise me from listening to the way that you talk, because it sounds like right from the beginning, you were considering actually how to prevent some of the harm that you were seeing. How did you feel kind of as you moved up the ranks of responsibility and how did that look within your career? What roles did you undertake? Yeah, I mean, you go from student to staff nurse to sister quite quickly if you're willing to work at it. But it was encouraged those days. You had to get the grounded experience. And as I say, I think that came together in ITU. And all the time you're doing different courses. So the leadership course, you become a trainer. So you take on the role of sort of nurturing new staff coming through. And that particularly came together for me in ITU as a sister cardiothoracic. And that's where I stayed at that level for a while. I then got married, so I changed areas. And I'd been offered a job as a a senior member on an intensive care unit at a particular hospital, which I won't mention, because when I went there, I really wasn't very happy with how it had been set up. It just wasn't what I was used to. There were lots of problems. So I sort of didn't take up that role, but I was poached to go and work on um, a unit for special care babies with intensive care experience. So that then became my role for about 10 years because I got married and had children, but still was studying. So then, as I say, we had degree nurses, so we all had to get degrees. So we were still studying while bringing up a family and working. And it was there that I really got interested in child protection safeguarding because we had high deprivation. We had high mortality due to the mother's maternal health. It was there that I got interested in working and developing the preventative model, which would be considered now as a bit like the PAUSE project to try and stop babies being born in poverty and bringing maternity with my maternity experience and public health experience together. And as I say, that's a successful project now. So that's what led me into changing my career path after getting that successfully working. It just gave me the interest to go and work in and do my health visiting. Yeah, I can see how you were led to that, but also I can see how much you value the fact that you walk the walk for a number of years. And as you said, you gave an example from healthcare that actually was expected of you to go up that process of learning and then going to the next level and then that continual learning and then moving up to the next level again. And it sounds like actually, um, along with doing the practical element on the ground, you've studied throughout your entire career at different levels as well. Yeah, yeah. I remember my son, when I got my master's, he said, does that mean you won't be working on the computer anymore? And I suddenly felt quite guilty. But it was at the same time that my daughter was doing her equivalent to GCSEs, O-levels, whatever they're called now. And so I always felt that I was encouraging the children and we had our downtime. But yeah, I suppose I did spend a lot of time studying and, you know, I, I vowed that I didn't want to do anything after that. And then I've gone on to be sort of developing different other policies and procedures and such like. So it's there, but it's research based. And that's what's always interested me because I always wanted to know why things would happen or what we could do, like you say, to change that course for that person. Because I am a great believer that there aren't bad people, but there are people that have had a bad start in life. And, you know, with the right help and support, they can be changed. So you have to work with your partners, which is why I think I found health visiting really interesting. 
But I didn't stay at Health Listing for very long, Tammy. I, when I got that job, they were just starting to bring in the designated nurses, which is where I went on to do my nurse consultant. And that's when I feel my career has collided because it gives you every element that I really enjoy about my role. And I, as much as I've got to this senior level, I still very much feel a nurse consultant and I'm always quite proud of that. And that's where I feel it brings all the elements together that I can have a really practical understanding and I can understand practice. So when I'm looking at any investigations or anything, I always like to see what the current practice is. And if we can get it right 30 years ago, why aren't we getting it right now? Yeah, absolutely. And you've given some great examples there of why you value evidence-based practice and academia and learning, but also how, in your opinion, that absolutely needs to be balanced with that operational expertise so that you can understand the practicalities of it and things are connected together. I see now when we're in the board meetings at AOCPP and we're discussing a variety of safeguarding subjects, I can see why now you're very balanced in your approach and kind of connect the dots from other board members who some of them are either academic or they've walked the walk and they've spent a lot of years in operational service. And I can see now how and why you bridge that gap. Yeah, thank you. I do try to do that. And I I feel that people have to understand. So I think maybe I remember when I was invited to be chair of the association. And I just want to say that actually, (laughs) I was surprised when I got to that level, let's say when they actually asked me out of the other members to actually consider that role. I thought that, you know, I'm, I'm not an academic. I saw it very much as an academic, but the gap was that practical element to are we delivering what people need to engage and sort of make sure people understand why research is important. So I can see that now, but at the time I remember thinking, oh, this is just a step too far because I shied away from, I mean, I always thought I wanted to be a director of nursing, but I was an associate for a while and I didn't enjoy pure management. I like the practical side, but I like to be able to influence change. So that's the public health understanding and really be quite sensible when things have gone wrong, that we can look and we can actually see where it's gone wrong and we can make a difference. That was always my leadership dream to actually make a difference in that area. And as I say, so actually taking on the AOCPPC, which I thought was, as I say, beyond me, I've really enjoyed the challenge in a way. It has been not easy, but it's brought a lot together and I'm still able to do my training. I still have my own training company. Uh, So as much as I've retired from health now, from the CCG, getting to commissioning level, I feel now I can dip in and out and do what I enjoy, like serious case reviews, training and sort of bring on other people. I hope I can inspire other people to think that child protection isn't all doom and gloom. And I hope I do that within my training and sort of the serious case review learning that if we get it right, we can really start making a difference. And things do have to change. As I say, I was involved in a serious case review in 1984 and the recommendations were still being churned out in 2015. So we had to change the process. And I've enjoyed being part of that change model and seeing how we can develop an influence, influence government, influence policy, influence health authorities, social care. I do a lot of peer review work. So you see how all systems work together. And I really enjoy that. So it's the nicer side, not an inspection. It's a peer review and supervision and development. Absolutely. 
And would you see AOCPP as part of making that change? Yeah, I think it's a foundation now. I've been a member for many years, I mean, through studying and picking up papers when I was first doing my degree in child protection at the time. So having that research and having that grounding and translating it into practice is a real solid foundation. And as I say, I was a member and then I was a chair of a local group and then I was on the trustees board and, and now I'm chair. So it's definitely, definitely influenced what I do. And I hope it is valuable in influencing other people. Brilliant. Thank you. And so you've been a member for how many years? Do you know, I don't know. It's got to be since, what are we now? 2020, aren't we? It's got to be late 90s. I was a member of Baspan. And have you seen things change over that time? Yes, because the funniest thing was, is when I was first asked to present some serious case review training with Peter Seibotham, to me, he was somebody I held in great esteem. So to be delivering training alongside him, I wanted to pinch myself because we'd worked on child death before. He was somebody whose papers I'd read and looked up to. And there I was on the same platform. <laughs> oh, fantastic. I'll have to tell Peter to um, listen to this podcast. But interestingly, the other day, one of our facilitators at Tay was delivering about domestic abuse. And we were talking about a toxic trio and how it had moved into cumulative harm. And I went and Googled to try and find for him the information that he need. And it was all Peter's work. Yeah. So I sat back a little bit and was just pleased at the fact that AOCPP has some amazing people involved in it, from the members to the trustees. And what I've really recognised as I've had the privilege of being involved is actually people's willingness to share, because actually we're, we're all doing this from a perspective of safeguarding and preventing harm, abuse and neglect. And actually yeah. that as a shared mission is really powerful, isn't it? I think so. I think we've brought people together and it's always been the so what and how can we make a change and how can we make a difference? It's been there through my pure safeguarding role all the way through in different elements, really, if I needed help and support and advice. And I mean, when I first got my designated role, we were very much part of meeting with the Children's Commissioner. Things have drifted there now. That's something I'd like to bring us closer together. But we were influencing how policies in government were shaping and forming as just that health element at that time. But what Baskapan and AOCPP do is bring the professionals together. So it is a joint response and people understand the different roles. And that's where the change happens. So you're not just looking at it from one lens. And as I say, actually having that possibility to influence with grounded research is powerful. Yeah, absolutely. And being part of a collective that everybody wants to do that, it makes things even more powerful, doesn't it? Yeah. But throughout this podcast, you've been brilliant at literally guessing the next question that I'm going to ask and then <laughs> answering it. But I've just got two questions left. But again, you seamlessly take me into them. You just talked there about some of the historic work within the AOCPP and the links with the Children's Commissioner and such like. And I just wondered if you could make a fundamental difference within the sector, what would that be? Would it be about that policy change or would it be changing from historical perspectives? Some of the, as you've said, kind of you reflected on serious case reviews and the changes and things. What do you think is needed? Do you know, what would you like to see most happen? 
Well, I'm currently working on the Thousand and One First Days. So I'm working with the LGA and I was part of a few early peer reviews in relation to that. And what's really telling is a lot of good practice has stopped. So the sort of really enriched roles that health visitors, social workers were doing, if you think back to the Every Child Matters, all of a sudden, if you look at the 1001 Days, that is the Every Child Matters. It's early intervention. And it's the same if we're thinking if we can get into those families and really, really make a difference with a policy that is really going to make a difference, widely disseminated change the way that we're looking at inspections, change the way that Ofsted's working and invest in early intervention. I always say that if child protection really was a public health issue, say take COVID now, if you had as much investment, we could improve the quality of so many people's lives, but things drift. So I'm hoping that the 1001 days will actually once and for all, we stop throwing the baby out with the bathwater and we get a policy that's sustainable over 10, 20 years, not short term. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think that will be an incredible piece of work because as you're talking, some of the things that I'm reflecting on is some of the circles that we've gone on from a safeguarding perspective. And I don't have quite as many years to reflect back on as you. But for me, it leads to intense frustration because people are harmed and people die within that. And then we do seem to distill some of the excellent practice and move forward with elements of it, but then losing some of the others. So I'm really excited about this piece of work and I'll be really pleased when it's launched to see hopefully the difference that it makes. Yeah. And it's the same for serious case reviews. The road that we've come on since we've been doing serious case reviews. I honestly think we've kind of got there now. I think the national panel is working really well. I think we've sort of throwing out the long reports and we're actually getting learning in the moment. And I hope that we will see that we'll filter through with this change is that we will really see some change that is disseminated widely. So we're not repeating an academic document. And um, believe you me, I've been through times where we were being marked on our you know, you've got an ABC and police always did very well because they're very factual. But, you know, I, I'm pleased to say that we're actually looking and making a difference there. And I think this review is making a big difference. Yeah, I really hope so. And I think that you need to take some of the credit from what we talked about earlier with regards to your real balance of that practical experience and then that real evidence-based practice that you're seeking as well. Because I know from my involvement in developing NICE guidelines and such like, historically, we can get really tied up in the evidence-based practice. And of course, it's fundamental, it's really important, but there has to be that bridge into the practicalities as well. And if the work that you're talking about now really enables practice that is evidence-based and practical and can make a difference on the ground, it will be transformational. Yeah. And it just needs sustainability. So it needs that investment. You almost want a coalition to say, right, this element of children's services is going to stand because that will enrich adults' lives as well as children. I think we are starting to see a change. Of course, we're in odd times at the moment, so we're not able to scrutinise as much as we'd like. Yeah, so that's, that's me, really. I'm still as passionate. I'm still as passionate about doing what I'm doing, even though I've stepped down from the CCG. That choice for early retirement was so I can get my pension at 55 and then I can pay off the mortgage, but still very much do what I like doing and I can just pick and choose. 
I guess it's hard work that's got me to this level to be able to have that experience and confidence to sort of be independent because that's a big jump. Another thing for nurses, you're used to working within a team. So all of a sudden working for yourself is a bit alien. But of course, you have a whole team now of safeguarding network. And that's one of the huge benefits I find from the AOCPP is that if you are an independent or you're part of a team, you're also part of the AOCPP membership. Um, And I know from the members meetings that we've been holding that the feedback that we've had back is that particularly in these strange times when everything's happening virtually, the members meetings allow people to connect together to have that evidence-based learning that we've talked about is so important, but also to really kind of lean into their colleagues with more or less experience. That's a team in itself as well, isn't it? Definitely. And we have members that reach out to us and we equally have trustees that that share and, and reach out to each other and sort of sound off each other's ideas. So no, it's definitely a family. And I think that was proved with our 40 year celebration. I was privileged to be part of that and drive that forward. There's things that I'm equally pleased about, which was to celebrate trainers, because again, that can be a very isolating role and you're not often thanked for doing what you do. So as we move forward, that is something that I want to make sure is embedded. That's my time as chair. And I think I'll feel like I've made a difference. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for your time today, Wendy. On behalf of AOCPB members, I'd like to say also a big thank you for being chair because you are leading from the front and really being that bridge so that everything that AOCPP does has the exact impact and benefits that the members desire to help them be able to prevent harm, abuse and neglect. And that's an amazing legacy. Thank you, Tammy. As I say, it's a privilege to hold that role. Thank you for listening to the AOCPP's podcast. If there are any specific topics you want discussed in future episodes, email us at hello at aacpp.org.uk. And if you would like more information about the Association of Child Protection Professionals, then visit our website at childprotectionprofessionals.org.uk. Thank you.